Hello, I'm Todd Deck, and I am the County Librarian here at the Tehama County Library, and it is my privilege to introduce to you our new project. In the spring of 2021, I learned of a project from the Los Angeles County Library called Hidden Heroes Historic Places. This project came out in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. It resulted in an adult coloring book celebrating and amplifying unheard voices from the rich and diverse history of Los Angeles County. As a rural library with limited resources and staff, the thought of taking on a similar project here in Tehama County felt impossible. However, when the American Library Association put forth the opportunity for a grant called Libraries Transforming Communities, focus on small and rural libraries, I took a shot and we were generously awarded the funding to make a Tehama County version of Hidden Heroes Historic Places. The following pages are our library's attempt to shed light on Tehama County's beautiful diversity, to amplify some previously unheard voices, and to hopefully share with you some important stories. We are proud to do this work in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the urgent need to tell new and different stories. While reading these pages, I hope that you will reflect on the question, what makes a hero? Hello, I'm Georgia Scott, reference librarian at the Tehama County Library. I wrote the following forward, researched, compiled, and wrote the biographies for Tehama County Hidden Heroes. Forward. As a fourth generation resident of Tehama County, I have both a penchant and vested interest in local history. My paternal great-grandfather served in the Northern Army during the Civil War and came to Red Bluff to manage the county hospital shortly after. Having considerable foreknowledge of the county's history, I admit having some trepidation in taking on this project. But, as I began to delve deeper and deeper into the library archive, I got hooked. I found fascinating stories of heroism and achievement of individuals and cultures whose lives were filled with hardship, discrimination, and disappointment, who rose above the restrictions of the time. The commonality, the heroic qualities possessed collectively or within each individual, perseverance, resiliency, compassion and daring, with honor and selflessness, devoid of fear, with focus on survival and the creation of a better quality of life for those to come. This gift is meant to be shared multi-generationally to educate, inspire, and give insight into the men, women, and cultures within its pages that may not be commonly known, yet have made a lasting positive impact on the Tehama County community during their lifetime and beyond. We celebrate the heroes who epitomize the best of our past, who deserve acknowledgement and recognition, and to not merely exist as a memory in a family scrapbook or filed away in an archive. Nothing is given to man on earth. The struggle is built into the nature of life, and conflict is possible. The hero is the man who lets no obstacle prevent him from pursuing the values that he has chosen. Andrew Bernstein. 
Keith Lingenfelter, 1915 to 1984. The reason I chose Keith Lingenfelter as a hidden hero is because his book, The Tehama County Pioneers, is invaluable to the library and to the community. In 1979, Keith Lingenfelter a family history researcher from Red Bluff, California, gave Special Collections Department, Miriam Library, a large group of family records that he had compiled. Among these records were nearly 50,000 names of the early immigrant families and individuals who lived in or near Tehama County, including some from Butte, Calusa, Shasta, and Glen, from before 1850 and well into the mid-20th century. This compilation was begun as a class project at Shasta College in 1962. Keith continued to work on it until his death in 1984. Besides the genealogy of married and unmarried persons in Tehama County, the collection contains source materials used in his research, such as cemetery records, probate records, newspaper clippings, and a listing of marriages, death certificates, census records, and other miscellaneous research. Just before his death, the collection was given to Miriam Library through a series of donations from Tehama County friends and family. The genealogy sections have been published in book form, and they can be found on the web. Alvin Aaron Coffey, Sr., 1822 to 1902. I chose Alvin Aaron Coffey for this project because he bought his freedom from slavery and came to Tehama County making a historic impact on our community. Alvin Aaron Coffey Sr., a pioneer resident of Tehama County, was instrumental in the encouragement of early schooling for Negro children in both Tehama and Shasta counties. He was the first person of African descent to join the California Society of Pioneers. Born a slave in Mason County, Kentucky, in 1822, he bought his freedom for $1,000 and arrived in California in 1849. He homesteaded a plot of land in Shasta County and during the Modoc Indian Wars provided horses to the U.S. Army and offered his services as a teamster. Later, Coffee operated a laundry and raised turkeys. Coffee moved to Tehama County, purchasing a farm adjoining Elder Creek on the North Bank, and was issued a patent for 160 acres of land north of the present Rancho Tehama Road and west of Pasquenta Road. He acquired a homestead certificate with the purchase of an additional 80 acres, the land where he and his wife Mahala raised seven children. Alvin Coffey was instrumental in getting early California laws passed to permit the establishment of Negro schools. Through the efforts of the Coffey family, the Logans, who bought 2,000 acres at 20 cents an acre near the Coffeys on Oak Creek, and a third Negro family, the Robinsons, the project of establishing the first school of Negro children in California was a success. Oak Creek School, also referred to as the Logan School, was located on the Red Bluff Pasquena Road just south of Oak Creek. The school opened its doors to Negro and Indian children and a few whites. It burned down once but was rebuilt. Miss Sarah Brown, daughter of abolitionist John Brown, and Mr. Graven were the teachers. 
One student, Clara Logan, was, quote, enabled to continue through Red Bluff High School, graduating in the pioneer class. Public education of non-whites was regarded as too liberal a policy by some citizens of that day. In spite of prejudices and largely due to the prodding of these Negro families coupled with the efforts of John Brown's survivors in Red Bluff. Godfrey Human, 1912 to 2009. I chose Godfrey Human as a hidden hero because I remember my dad, Bob Waney, took me to the Thrashing Bee and to see the model railroad when I was just a little girl. Godfrey A. Human was the internationally famous South Shasta Lines model railroad builder of Gerber. He had a love for trains, even as a little boy, and would go down to the train crossing to watch them go by whenever possible, wishing for the day that he may become a railroad engineer. The Human Ranch was also known for the South Shasta Steam Threshing Bee, held on Labor Day weekend from 1963 to 1987, one of California's very first threshing bees. At the age of 14, Godfrey, his parents, and younger brother moved from Lincoln, Nebraska, coming west to settle in Gerber in 1927. The family began their farming business by planting barley while Godfrey and his father also earned extra money, helping with the rice harvest up and down the northern Sacramento Valley. In the early 40s, he purchased his own farm in Gerber and raised hay and grain. His early experience threshing grain and driving horse-pulled bundle wagons and binders turned him into a lifelong threshing expert, maintaining a collection of antique farm equipment. In 1950, the first spike was driven on a miniature railroad in the 36-foot by 60-foot basement of the human's home. Godfrey and his wife Betty started building the internationally known South Shasta Line, named so because it was south of Mount Shasta, a replica of the Union Pacific Railroad that ran from Gerber to Dunsmere in the 1940s and 50s. As each town along the way to Dunsmere was reached, Red Bluff in 1952, Anderson in 1957, Redding in 62, the mayor of the real town was invited to drive a silver spike. There was a live band to play upon the arrival of the first passenger train and again upon its departure. When Dunsmere was reached, the line was finished, and a gold spike was driven by the mayor of Dunsmere in 1992. The real railroad reached Dunsmere in 1886. Human opened his basement display of the model railroad to public showings in the springtime and at Christmas. The completed 900-foot track running to Dunsmere included many rare features, such as glowing fireboxes in the steam locomotives, a miniature locomotive bell that rings, an operating sawmill, and an old alfalfa mill that was a Gerber landmark. Spellbound visitors watched Blue Bonnet as she raced down the valley and laboring up the grade with the exhaust bouncing from the canyon walls. April of 2008, when Human was 95, was the last time to see old-time steam and gas-powered farming equipment dating back to 1831 and the hour-long model railroad show. Over the years, his guest book showed visitors hailed from hundreds of California towns, nearly all 50 states and many countries. The layout was featured in national magazines, including Modern Railroading. Nomlaki Tribe, Native Americans of Southwest Tehama County, Prehistory, 
to the present. I chose the Nomalaki tribe as hidden heroes. Despite hardship and discrimination, they currently strive to improve the quality of life for our community. The Native Americans who inhabited the southwest portion of Tehama County were the Nomalaki. They lived in villages of 25 to 200 people under the leadership of a chieftain. The chief's house was larger than the others and formed the center of the village facing the water source. In addition to serving as the chief's residence, it was the men's house and focal point of village life. The most common house plan consisted of digging a hole three to four feet deep and 10 feet across, erect an upright post in the center about six feet high, lay poles from the edge of the hole to the rest on the top of the center pole and cover the poles with grass and finely dirt. The Nomlaki's primary food were acorns, grass seeds and tubers, deer, elk, rabbits, birds and fish. All men hunted, but some specialized in certain techniques and methods. Hunting was done both in groups and individually with bows and arrows, clubs, nets, snares, and traps. Women, often working in groups, gathered many different seeds, tubers, and acorns. The Nomlaki were not a wealthy tribe in comparison to mountain tribes or other tribes farther north. Their basketry was crude, and they depended on other tribes for their finery, exchanging goods by trading food, mainly dried meat and salmon, and some prepared buckeye. In return, they might receive fine baskets, eagle feathers, and of prime importance, yew wood, which was highly prized for bows. The yew tree grows only at higher elevations outside the Nomlaki tribal lands, and while bow makers also used the local juniper, they preferred the superior you. The Pasquina Rancheria was created along with other Wintu Rancherias in 1906 and 1909. In 1920, the Rancheria was 260 acres. In 1959, the Rancheria was terminated under the California Rancheria Termination Act, and the lands were sold to non-native people. Despite the denial of federally recognized tribal status, the Pasquena Band maintained its tribal identity and culture while it worked for restoration as a Native American tribe. Finally, in 1994, the federal government restored the Pasquena Band of Nomlaki Indians to full tribal status. The current rancheria is 2,000 acres large. The Pasquena Band is headquartered in Corning, California, and the current tribal chairperson is Andrew Drew, Alejandre, who succeeds Andy Freeman and Everett Freeman, who was instrumental in the tribe regaining their tribal recognition. The tribe established the Rolling Hills Community Development Foundation, which supports local groups in their efforts to improve and develop the North State. The foundation funds programs with the end goal of higher education, education-related activities that better the economic landscape of local counties and activities that further the goals of improving the quality of life for local residents and surrounding communities. Kindle E. Carlson, 1919-1977 I was fascinated by the heroism of Kindle Carlson and immediately wanted to share his story with our community. Kindle E. Carlson, or Swede as he was known, was born in Red Bluff, California. He joined the Royal Canadian Air Force, earning his wings in December of 1940 
prior to America's entry into World War II. When the United States established the fourth fighter group in England, Sweet joined them in March of 1943. He was assigned to the 336th Fighter Squadron flying P-47 Thunderbolts, with which he scored his first victory. Later flying the new Mustangs, he shot down three ME-110s in battles during March. During World War II, Carlson became a U.S. Army Air Force ace, credited with shooting down six enemy aircraft in aerial combat. On the 25th of February, 1945, while strafing Cothan Aerodrome, he crash-landed on the airfield, but he climbed out onto the wing to direct the rest of the destruction. He was taken prisoner and headed for POW incarceration, where he remained until his return to U.S. military control at the end of the hostilities in May of 1945. Carlson was awarded the Prisoner of War Medal for actions during World War II. After he was released and returned to the States, he next became involved in the Korean War, where he flew combat missions with the 12th Fighter Bomber Squadron from July 1950 to January of 51. During this time, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. He left the Air Force in April of 1951 and returned to Red Bluff where he lived until his death in 1977. Decorations, Distinguished Flying Cross, Air Medal, Presidential Unit Citation, Purple Heart, European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal, POW Medal, American Campaign Medal, American Defense Medal, Korean Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, United Nations Service Medal, and World War II Victory Medal. Morton Armor Care, 1903-1992. Morton Care, an Olympic athlete who went to Red Bluff High, definitely a hidden hero. Born in Omaha, Nebraska, Mort Care was a world-famous athlete as a track star and an All-American collegiate and professional football player. As a young boy, he developed his athletic skills throwing stones into the Sacramento River and running across fields and hurdling barbed wire fences in the Antelope area. At Red Bluff High School, class of 1922, Mort set a state high school record by long jumping 23 and 3 quarters feet. As a young man, he became nationally famous as an Olympic track athlete and a USC halfback. At the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, he placed fifth in the Olympic pentathlon competition, and upon returning to Red Bluff, he was greeted at the train station by a band. Following the Olympics, he spent the rest of the summer with his parents in Antelope and returned to USC, where he had accepted a football scholarship. Playing for the USC Trojans 1924 to 1926, Mort went from a 145-pound freshman to a 172-pound All-American halfback and gained the nickname Devil May Care. He set a school record by scoring 19 touchdowns that lasted 43 years, broken in 1968 by O.J. Simpson. After his college career, Care played one year professional football with the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets of the National Football League. Feeling homesick, Care returned to Northern California and in 1944 he coached and taught at Weed High School until retiring in 1972. 
accumulating a remarkable record of 187-47-7 over 28 years, in which his teams won 17 conference championships. As a coach, he tried to impress on his players the same ideas that made him a small but durable running back. He believed if you're in perfect shape, you can get knocked around. Mort Devil May Care was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame in 1972. Claire Engel, 1911-1964. The pride of Red Bluff, a true Tehama County hero. Born in Bakersfield, Claire Engel, the pride of Red Bluff, was a politician who served as a United States Senator from California from 1959 until his death in 1964. A member of the Democratic Party, he is best remembered for participating in the vote breaking the filibuster of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in the U.S. Senate while partially paralyzed and unable to speak. He previously served in the California State Senate January to August 1943 and U.S. House of Representatives from August 1943 until January of 1959. He attended public schools in Shasta and Tehama counties. His fellow students at Red Bluff High School elected him student body president. Engel graduated from Chico State Teachers College in 1930, attended the University of California Hastings College of Law, graduating in 1933, and admitted to the California Bar the same year. He was elected District Attorney of Tehama County at age 23, California State Senator at 31, Congressman at 32, and United States Senator at 47. As the U.S. House of Representative from 1944 and re-elected to the following six Congresses, Ingalls District consisted of 18 counties in Northern California. With only the district in Nevada being physically larger, he used his pilot's license to campaign and meet with constituents. Sometimes he was jokingly referred to as Congressman Fireball because of his activity, his colorful language, the location of the geographically active Mount Lassen in his district, and the clouds of smoke rising from his cigars. Ingalls sponsored several major expansions of the California Central Valley Project, as well as the Saline Water Conservation Research Program and a low interest loan program relating to small irrigation projects. Also a key supporter of the Taft-Hartley Act, which did not prevent him from being nominated by both parties when he sought re-election. Senator Engel underwent surgery to remove a brain tumor on August 24, 1963, leaving him partially paralyzed and forcing him to miss several Senate sessions, ultimately withdrawing from his re-election campaign. On June 10, 1964, during the roll call for the historic successful effort to break the filibuster on what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when the clerk reached Mr. Engel, there was no reply. The tumor had robbed him of his ability to speak. Slowly lifting an arm, he pointed to his eye, thereby signaling his affirmative vote, I. The cloture vote was 71-29 four votes more than the two-thirds required to end the filibuster, and days later, the Senate approved the act itself. Engel died in Washington, D.C. a month and a half later, with over 3,000 mourners attending his funeral in Red Bluff, 
at the First Methodist Church, and he's buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. Felix Cooper, 1912 to 1997. I chose Felix Cooper as a historic hero because, despite the prejudice he faced, he became a champion rodeo star. Felix Cooper, born in Pelican, Louisiana in May of 1912, was among the best African-American rodeo contenders of the 1940s and early 1950s. In pursuit of his dream to become a cowboy, Cooper joined Milt Hinkle's Wild West Show in 1930 and entered his first professional rodeo in 1934. He joined the ranks of the Cowboys Turtle Association, CTA, when it first organized in 1936. Cooper experienced the racial prejudice then common in American society, often taking fourth-place money for his first-place performance. He rode the Great Bucking Horse Steamboat in both 1937 and 1938 and handled other outlaws like Hell's Angel and Sidecar. His persistence, skill, and honesty were such that in the early 1940s, he served as the first African-American arena judge in professional rodeo voted in by his cowboy peers. Cooper became a rodeo bullfighter in the late 1930s and throughout the 1940s and into the 1950s. Retiring from the arena in 1956, he held a national reputation as one of the best in the sport and later developed into a famous rodeo clown. In 1968, he was presented a gold Rodeo Cowboys Association life membership card by the world champion cowboy, Larry Mann. When Mr. Cooper left the rodeo circuit during the 1950s, he came to Rebluff and operated the Shoe Shine Stand in Peter Lassen Square. Barbara Jean Crowley, 1927 to 1996. I chose Barbara Crowley as a hidden hero because she was the first female elected to the Board of Supervisors in Tehama County. A native of Los Angeles, Barbara graduated from Stanford University with a bachelor's in graphic arts and also received her teaching credentials from California State University, Chico. As I said, she was the first female to be elected to the Board of Supervisors within our county in 1974 and chairwoman for the board in 1978 and 1982. While serving as a Tehama County Supervisor, Barbara chaired the County Supervisors Association of California Committee on Resources and Energy Policy. In 1984, former Governor George Duke Majan appointed her as the California Energy Commission's environmental member, and she was named to a second five-year term in 1989. Vice Chair of the Commission in 85 and 87, and retiring in 1994. While serving on the commission, Barbara was a strong advocate of energy efficiency as a way to help consumers save money and prevent pollution. As a former teacher and a member of the Tehama County Board, she became familiar with environmental and air quality issues while raising walnuts, almonds, prunes, and olives in Tehama and Glen counties. Ms. Crowley also held the position of President of the Regional Council of Rural Counties, and in 1981 and 82, she was the chairwoman of both the National Association of Counties Public Lands Committee and the County Supervisors Association 
of California Committee on Resources and Energy Policy. Sam Lee, late 1800s to 1920s. Sam Lee's generosity of sharing his gardens with the local community during the war was why I chose him as a hidden hero. Sam Lee was known to be the last Chinese in Tehama. He ran a store beside the house he owned in Vina and also had a restaurant in Tehama called Sam Lee Feng Zhang. Sam had an extensive garden next to Bill's stores and the gardens across the river by the old Sesma Mill. Lee and Charlie Peanuts, his chief gardener, used an old broken down horse to cultivate the ground and delivered produce in a wire panel truck throughout Tehama and Gerber. He was fondly remembered by many he'd helped during the war by supplying them with vegetables. Sam Lee and Charlie were the last Chinese in the city of Tehama's Chinatown, which at one time had the largest Chinese section of any city in California outside of San Francisco. Many of the residents planted large gardens, raising much of the vegetables consumed in the city. For several years, Southern Pacific Railroad ran an overnight train to San Francisco to handle the gardeners' produce. Over the years, many Chinese were buried in the Tehama Cemetery. Their bodies were disinterred and sent to China, where most were born. Sam Lee, the last of the Chinese residents, oversaw this project before he left for China. The first Chinese arrived in America four years after the Revolutionary War. Then in 1849, they began their big migration to California to the Gold Mountain. Discrimination against them was widespread and cruel, with numerous laws passed to exclude them from the mines. Many turned to other occupations to the eternal benefit of the entire region. They believed that labor was honorable and were excellent workers for almost no pay or benefits. Highlights are the building of the Central Pacific Railroad, the transformation of the bottomland in fertile Northern California, the construction of dams and walls, the agricultural work which provided the impetus which enabled California to develop into a stronger position nationally much earlier than otherwise possible. Champions of the Western Hemisphere, Red Bluff Little League, 1974. If you were born and raised in Tehama County like I was, then you surely heard about the Red Bluff Little League team who went to the World Series. In the spring of 1974, the Little League baseball season began in Red Bluff. The coaches and managers volunteering their time and hoping to choose a winning team of 11 and 12 year olds. They knew some of the kids from the previous year and planned their strategy to get the good ones on their teams. They didn't have a clue at the time how good they would turn out to really be. The first games were played July 18th and 19th at Happy Camp with Mark Colucci pitching. They had a 7-0 victory over the All-Stars from Happy Camp and so it began. Their winning streak continued next to Cottonwood, then to Anderson, to Chico beating Sutter and Sacramento. They beat San Mateo and then Stockton, and with their victory at San Lorenzo, each received a white windbreaker with Red Bluff Little League stars on it. At the Western Regionals, they defeated a New Mexico team, also Washington State and Utah. The last deciding game before Williamsport and the World Series games before a crowd of 12,000 brought victory over San Rey, a team from the San Bernardino area.
Everyone, including the losing team, was pleased a California team was going to the World Series. In Williamsport, Pennsylvania, they defeated Canada, earning the team the right to play Venezuela and winning 4-3. to three. At this point, they were ready for the big one. The game against Taiwan was televised live in China and filmed by ABC. Red Bluff had defeated 15 straight opponents to get this far, while Taiwan had won seven games. Their big win was not to be. The final score, Taiwan 12, Red Bluff 1. Fourteen young men in the summer of 1974 put Red Bluff, California into Hama County on the world map. The team's photograph with President Gerald Ford is displayed in the Tehama County Courthouse. Mexican agricultural workers, Tehama County, 1900s to the present. Growing up in Corning, olives were inevitably a part of my life. Those individuals who picked the fruit have always been heroic contributors to our county. Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is the superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration. Abraham Lincoln, 1861. Walk into olive orchards in Tehama County and the plunk plunk sound of olives dropping into buckets will resonate as olive pickers harvest this seasonal crop. With the migration of seasonal agricultural workers, this increased labor force makes it possible for growers to get fruit off the trees before it overripens. The state of California produces one-third of the nation's vegetables and two-thirds of the nation's fruits and nuts, documenting the role that Tehama County agriculture is a local economic driver in 2017, it contributed $679.1 million to the county economy. Fruit and nut crops were 70.6% of that amount. Migrant workers face many hardships, lacking educational opportunities for their children, living in poverty, and terrible housing conditions, with deportation being their biggest fear. But the coronavirus pandemic brought an unusual kind of recognition to the job of field worker now deemed essential to the country by the federal government. Migrants can carry a letter from their employer declaring that the Department of Homeland Security considers them critical to the food supply chain and are suddenly recognized as contributing. For workers, the fact that they are now considered both illegal and essential is an irony not lost on them, nor their employers, who have long had to navigate a legal thicket to maintain a workforce. In 2019, a new program, previously used in other California counties, was launched in Tehama County, bringing 200 Mexican foreign nationals to Red Bluff as agricultural workers harvesting strawberries. The employees were selected through a labor contractor who went to Mexico and conducted several hundred interviews, choosing 200 from that number to be employed at a federally mandated wage. The program offered encouragement and fostered more reliable workers, who in the past may have had to move on to another job for higher wage or better conditions. In the year where COVID was taking its toll on the county, these workers were given housing at the fairgrounds 
while the program provided a $95,000 boost to the fairgrounds budget and supported the local agricultural industry. Trappist Monks and the Abbey of New Clairvaux, 1955 to the present, Father Thomas X. Davis. The monks of New Clairvaux offer solace, food, and drink to travelers coming through Vina on a piece of property with a fascinating history. Clairvaux derives from the Latin Clare Valensis, Valley of Light, or Clear Valley. The Bosque Ranchero granted to Peter Lassen is the current location of the Abbey of New Clairvaux in Vina, California, purchased by the Trappist monks coming from Kentucky in 1955. The Trappists are a Roman Catholic order founded in 1098 with the rule of St. Benedict as their guide. While living out their contemplative lives of work and prayer, they serve in mutual charity and offer hospitality. Monasteries are renowned as places of refuge for travelers seeking a safe, clean place with food and drink. In the tradition of the self-sustaining economy of the order, the new Clairvaux Vineyard and their prune and walnut orchards provide financial support, allowing them to preserve their sacred traditions for over 900 years. The Trappists are not the first to cultivate vina soil. Some of California's most innovative and industrious winemakers have done so for more than 150 years. Geologists attribute the characteristics of vina loam to volcanic silt carried from Mount Lassen to the mouth of Deer Creek at the Sacramento River. Tradition claims Peter Lassen went by horseback to missions in Southern California and obtained vine cuttings. When Henry Gerke acquired the Bosque from Lassen, he produced choice wines having a wine cellar on the banks of Deer Creek and became Tehama County's leading vintner in 1867. Leland Stanford purchased the land in 1881 initially planting 1,200 acres of grapes that winter, eventually building the ranch to some 60,000 acres and constructing a two-and-a-half-acre wine cellar using 2,400,000 bricks made in Roseville, California. In 1955, it was acquired by Trappist monks. Father Thomas X. Davis, one of the original group of monks, was instrumental in acquiring the famous 13th century stone chapter house from the city of San Francisco. The structure was originally built between 1190 and 1220 in Spain as part of the Santa Maria de Avila Monastery. William Randolph Hearst had purchased parts of the monastery in 1931 and shipped 10,000 stones to San Francisco, but ended up giving them to the city as part of an arrangement to abate taxes that he owed. Abandoned in Golden Gate Park for decades, the stones were noticed by Father Davis, abbot of the Abbey of New Clairvaux. He eventually made a deal with the city to get 1,300 stones and handle the reconstruction. In 2004, after raising $7 million, the construction of the chapter house began outside the cloister of the Abbey. The Sierra Nevada Brewing Company partnership aided in financing the project, which was completed and dedicated as the Monastery Church in 2013. UFO Sighting, Corning, California, August 13, 1960. This is truly a hidden historical event. 
Life was placid in the small northern California town of Corning with its rural farms and pastoral settings. That is, until one memorable night in August 1960. Near midnight, while traveling east of Corning on Hogue Road, two CHP officers saw a huge object, as large as an airliner, falling from the sky. Stopping, they leaped from their patrol car, afraid that it might fall on their vehicle. Noticing complete silence and believing the craft's engines to be off, they watched as it continued to fall rapidly to an altitude of about 100 feet and then suddenly reversed direction. At that point, it climbed to approximately 400 feet, stopped, and hovered. The patrol officers observed that the oblong-shaped object was surrounded by a glow. They described red lights at each end and along the sides with white lights in the center. As they watched in amazement, it began to move, performing unbelievable aerial feats. At this point, they called the sheriff's office, which called the local radar base to report. The base said they were tracking an unidentified object that didn't say the two were the same. As the patrolman continued to watch, the object came directly at their vehicle, sweeping the area with a violent red light. And when they turned their car's red light toward it, it immediately moved away, slowly moving east. Officers Scott and Carson followed it until reaching the Vina Plains Fire Station, Cal Fire, where a similar object coming from the south approached, at which point the two stopped and stayed in one position for quite some time. After watching this unbelievable sight, the patrolman returned to the local sheriff's office. That evening, eight officers reported seeing flying saucers. In addition to the CHP officers, three sheriff's deputies and three city policemen saw what they described as a slowly moving object with red and white lights at a low altitude. The patrolman also stated they experienced radio in interference every time the object came close to their vehicle. That week, officials at the radar base claimed no knowledge of the strange object and denied tracking it on their radar screens. The base commander, however, did forward the patrolman's report to the Portland Air Force Defense Sector for investigation, and a complete report also went to Sacramento. McClellan Air Force Base sent a supervisory investigator, Dwayne Lisland, and assigned Lieutenant Snyder of the local radar base to aid in this investigation. Lisland's report was sent to Wright-Patterson Field in Ohio, where the Air Force maintains a UFO evaluation center. Sheriff Lyle Williams and Deputy A.D. Perry also spent several hours on the Inskip Butte Fire Lookout Station, scanning the skies for a reappearance of the phenomena. However, the mysterious objects did not make an appearance. According to the Sheriff's Office, the objects had been previously seen for several nights by Laura Jones, lookout at the station. Alice Standish Matheson, 1912, to 1986. I chose Alice as a hidden hero not only because she was a well-respected librarian, but it was while she served our county that the city and county libraries were consolidated. Alice was born in Glendale, Oregon in 1912, later moving with her parents to Klamath Falls. 
She attended both elementary and high school in Klamath Falls and graduating at age 16. Alice attended and graduated from the University of Oregon, returning back home again at the beginning of the Great Depression. While working at the Klamath Falls Library, she met her husband and married in 1939. The Matisans made the decision to move from Oregon to California, and with their two young sons, they came to the Corning area in 1946. While living in Corning, Alice began work as a library clerk in Red Bluff. The Tehama County Library was located in the basement of the courthouse when she first started in 1951. She did everything from cataloging to helping with circulation and reference work. Part of her work week included driving the bookmobile and traveling to all the outlying branches throughout the county. Determined to continue her education, and with the support of her husband, who'd promised she could finish school, Alice enrolled in UC Berkeley Library School, attending in the summer, and earned her master's in library science. With the retirement of former librarian Lillian Nisbet, Alice was hired as the Tehama County Librarian and served the community and county citizens for 25 years until her retirement in 1977. While Mrs. Matisson served as the Tehama County Librarian, the lengthy and complex matter of consolidating the city and county libraries was accomplished. Alice was much loved and well-respected throughout the county as a member of the Corning Business and Professional Women's Organization, Sir Optimus Club of Red Bluff, American Library Association, National Library Honor Society, and the Friends of the Library in both Red Bluff and Corning. 